Hey, let's take our Bibles and we're going to turn to Psalm 73 this morning as we continue our survey of the book of Psalms. Boy, we have, I know, a boatload of announcements this time of year. Uh, one, a couple of the things I just want to emphasize that Gene had mentioned. As he said, the men's retreat, uh, this is our first time up at Palomar Mountain. Really looking forward to that because it's close. There seem to be a great staff up there and a, a really nice facility. But they do want to have uh, numbers tomorrow. So if you think you're going to be going, please sign up. Um, whether And also, if it's just a, I'll just go up for Saturday, really need you to sign up for that too, okay? So that'll help us get our numbers a little closer to accurate with them. Also, with the small groups, we're going to be putting those groups together here probably this coming week. So if you're thinking about doing the small group, uh, spring session, which is going to run, I think, through March, so about two and a half months. Please sign up for that as well, okay? And then, of course, there's all the other sign-up sheets out there, but those are the two I wanted to really emphasize if you guys could do that. Here we've come to Psalm 73, and if you notice in your Bibles, it starts off probably above that saying, Book 3. Do you guys see that? So the Psalms are divided into five different sections. And uh, according to the Bible Reader's Companion, they say, these are generally agreed to have been collected and added to the official hymn book of Israel at different times. And if you notice, at the end of each section, there's like a doxology. Uh, like, look at the end of Psalm 72, oh, beginning from verse 18, where it says, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things and blessed be his glorious name forever and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And it's kind of like it's closing it out. And you see that at the, the close of each of these five books. And so, um, you know, perhaps an editorial edition that put that on there. Now, uh, as far as uh, this particular psalm, it says that it is a psalm of Asaph. And this takes us back to the authors of the book of Psalms. David, he wrote the lion's share of them. At least 73 are attributed to David, though he um, definitely wrote more. And we know that because we can go to the New Testament and see where some of the Psalms that don't have an author connected with it are um, attributed to David. And so um, the span of the authorship of the Psalms is about a thousand years. And the reason for that is because one of the Psalms goes all the way back to Moses, which was about 500 years before the time of David. And then there are Psalms that are believed to have been written after the Babylonian captivity, the exile as they came back to Jerusalem, which was again about 500 years in the future from David's time. So um, the lion's share of the Psalms that were written were written by David and people uh, of his day. And Asaph is one of those that were with David. He wrote 12 Psalms. Um, also Heman and Ethan, they were all Levite musicians in David's day. First Chronicles 15, oh. First and Second Chronicles, the emphasis is a lot on the spiritual side of Israel, the setting up of the priests for uh, the, the different um, times that they would be leading in worship and so forth. And so we read about Asaph being one of the chief musicians. And of course, we, we read of uh, 
of course, we read of Ethan and Heman as well. So 12 Psalms are attributed to Asaph. 11 of those start right here in Psalm 73. So Psalms 73 through 83 are all attributed to Asaph. The one other Psalm is Psalm 50 that uh, has his name in the title. And so again, Asaph, the author of this one, was one of David's chief musicians and one of the chief leaders over the Levitical choirs. This is classified as a wisdom psalm. Uh, in other words, it teaches us. It teaches us to be wise if we heed what it has to say. Uh, Expositor's commentary says Psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm in which lament is the vehicle of communication. Asaph was recounting his story when he was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. We've talked in the past about um, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, why do the righteous suffer? We've addressed that. This is kind of the other side of that coin. Why do good things happen to bad people? And why do the wicked seem to prosper? And this is one of the things that really stumbled Asaph as he saw the righteous suffering and he saw the wicked actually doing quite well. And the bottom line is, is when we don't understand something, we wanna fall back on what we do understand. And we see that right in verse one. Truly, God is good. When you don't understand what's going on in your life, fall back on that because God is good. And he doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Uh, I was talking with one of the guys in the fellowship who was, uh, heard a, a sermon, dramatized sermon on the radio station, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you heard of that sermon before? So powerfully, uh, it was one of the... Um, what was it, Great Awakening Preachers uh, that preached that sermon. And um, I, I took the time to read it yesterday. It's long. <laughs> they preached for a long time back then. Uh, but it was very um, hellfire and brimstone. And I see the point of the author. I see what he was trying to do. He was trying to say that if you don't have Jesus as your savior, you're gonna go to hell. And he made that point really clear as he was preaching the message. And if I remember the story correctly, when he preached that message, and we're going back to the 1700s, he was a guy who couldn't see real well, so he had you know, thick glasses, and he preached his message like this in a monotone voice, and people were crawling down the, the center aisle to give their life to the Lord, because it is so, you're like a spider that's hanging over the fires of hell, and God is getting ready to come and clip your web for you to fall down into that. And so people were, uh, again, it was hellfire and brimstone, and, and that has its place, does it not? I mean, you know, it, it's true that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, the scriptures say, but I think God also uses those hellfire and brimstone messages. I know that's what resonated with me when my brother was telling me, Steve, you're gonna go to hell if you don't get your life right. And it did, it planted a seed and you know how accurate, uh, but it planted a seed and it was true. So anyway, getting a little bit off my, my point right here. But again, I, I think he was getting his point across, again, coming back to Jonathan Edwards, uh, who wrote that sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, but I don't think he accurately communicated the nature of God. Uh, because as we look at the nature of God in the scriptures, we, we see a God that is loving and compassionate. Yes, he is just, but he is loving and compassionate. Sometimes people will look at the God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath and judgment, and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. How many gods do we serve? 
We serve one God and he is the same. And so as we look into the Old Testament, that's actually what we see is we see a God of love. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, God told him that you can't see me and live, but I'm going to pass before you and declare who I am. And in Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven, it says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Notice what God leads with as he's basically declaring his name. This is who I am. I am what? I am merciful. I am merciful. I am gracious. I am long suffering. That means he is patience and, and, and patient. And notice he doesn't just say, I, I'm good. He says, abounding, abounding in goodness and truth. And that's who God is. However, as that continues on, it does show by no means clearing the guilty. He is a God who loves us so much, but he is also a just God, is he not? That's why we need Jesus. Jesus is the one who came and laid his life down to bear the judgment that we deserve. And when we put our faith in him, we're forgiven of all of the things that we've done. We're, we're, we're cleansed of, of that sin nature that we talked about last week as we were looking at that. John 3.16, one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Notice again, for God so, God so loved the world that he gave. I mean, that which was most precious to him, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so look at this again, the motivating factor is love. And notice where we would end up if we did not believe, we would end up perishing. Again, there is the love of God and there is the, the justice of God. Does that make sense? Okay, we've broken God's laws. He's the one who set the, the standard. We've all fallen short of that standard. And the penalty for that is an eternity separated from him. His love is what brings us to him. Jesus' death on the cross is what satisfies his justice because the payment has been made. And when we put our faith in Jesus, it's applied to us. That's the good news, isn't it? That's the gospel. He's made a way and it's about us coming on his terms, his way and receiving Christ so that we can be forgiven. And so the goodness of God we see throughout the scriptures and it's essential that we understand that when we get to areas like what Asaph is looking at. You know, I see people who are living for you and yet they're suffering so much. And then I see people who are blaspheming your name and yet they seem to be so blessed. Have you ever had your foundation kind of rocked by things like that? Well, let's read. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Again, he starts off, truly God is good. Psalm 107 verse one, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. I say, God is good, and you say, and then all the time, yeah, and that's the basic foundational truth that we find in the scripture. 
Notice this is what jumped out to me though, what Asaph is, is stating here. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. The idea of pure is not perfect, but the idea here is loyal to God. Um, without hypocrisy is the idea there. And basically what he is stating is a very clear old covenant truth that God would bless for obedience, right? And he would curse for disobedience. That was really the nature of the old covenant. The principle is also seen under the new covenant, isn't it? I mean, generally speaking, we reap what we've sown. And so he, in essence, is making that statement but then what about the wicked? How come they're doing so good? And notice that, that Asaph, he's, as he's speaking of this, he's not just saying I'm stumbling over this. Notice in verse three, he's saying I'm envious of them. I'm envious because of how good their lives are. They seem to have it so easy and they seem to be wanting for nothing. Question, can you think of a time where you were envious of those who have it all? even though maybe they don't have God? That's a small groups question, by the way. <laughs> I'm plugging small groups right here. <laughs> so when we gather together on Wednesday nights in small groups and home fellowships, we're going over the previous Sunday's message and we're, we're, we're kind of digging in a little bit deeper and making it a little more practical and say, hey, have you ever felt this way? And, and the rest that are in the room get to be built up by that and recognize, wow, I'm not the only one that's going through things like that. It's a great time to be able to lift one another up, to mentor, to disciple one another, and also to get to know one another. And that's what I think draws us closer as the body of Christ, as the, the family of God here. So. Uh, I couldn't get, let that one go by without plugging it a little. But bottom line is, you know, this was a big stumbling block for, for him, and, and it can be uh, a stumbling block. What Asaph then continues to do is describe the wicked as he sees them. Verse four, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Uh, the word violence can refer to injustice. In other words, they're, they're, they're just living their life. They've got everything. They're not fair, and they wear that as a garment and pride like adorning them as a necklace. Verse 7, their eyes bulge with abundance. Notice, they have more than heart could wish. They have more than heart could wish. They have more than one would even desire. So you know how it is when you're like living paycheck to paycheck. If I just made 6,000 more a year, I'd have all my problems solved. Or if I just had a million dollars, I could retire. Oh, maybe it's maybe more like 10 million these days I could retire, right? But how about some of these public figures, some of the sports personalities? I mean, a half a billion dollars. That's kind of more than I would desire, you know, but we're talking big money and the impact that, that these people have on, on those who are looking up to them. And so Asaph, again, he's describing that very thing. They have more than heart could wish. Verse eight, they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, as people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them, 
And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? I think the idea in these verses here is they have the ability to negatively influence others. People drink in their words, in other words, and they're arrogant towards God. Now, as we take a look at this, and and here's a list of just kind of summarizing what Asaph was saying. The wicked, they live painless lives. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like others. They're not plagued with problems like others. They have everything their heart could wish for. They enjoy a life of ease while riches multiply. Now, that obviously isn't true of every unbeliever. It's also not uh, true when you think of every rich person. I mean, there's a lot of rich people who love the Lord and use those resources for, for God's glory. But this is the kind of thing that he's stumbling over. Verse 12, behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Notice, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. So you see how he's really struggling with this, you know, how he's stumbling over this and maybe saying, you know, was all of this, me living uprightly for the Lord, was it for nothing? And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And that's kind of where Asaph was at. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. I think the idea that we see in these verses is Asaph was keeping it all inside. He wasn't going around and saying these things. He was thinking them. And he's saying, if I was speaking this out loud, it wouldn't be good for the others to hear me, for for my people, my brethren. It's one thing for me to stumble. It's a whole other thing for me to stumble others. And so, again, verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. When he got the correct perspective, when he went into God's house, he saw that, yeah, though the wicked may be prospering in this life, there's going to come a day of reckoning. And when he gets that in view, that's where he is able to really turn it around. NIV translates that, when I understood their final destiny, there is going to be a day of reckoning coming. Jesus said in Mark 8:36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? I got to throw this out to us. Um, I mean, first of all, for those that don't know Jesus, this is huge. You, you need to come to him. Otherwise, you are the one left to be able to go, well, I tried my best. It's not going to get you where you want to go. Jesus is our only hope. He's the only way. But for the majority, I think, if if not hopefully all of us that are here as believers, sometimes we can get our eyes off what's really true and what's really right. Sometimes we can get our eyes on our own lives. And and again, for the majority of us that are in here, we're in the, how how should I say, the twilight years of our lives. We're we're getting towards the end. And and we realize, how much longer do I really have? 
you know, are we talking a couple decades? Are we talking a decade? Are we talking less? And we start looking at our lives and we can tend to, to go, kind of get of a, a, well, what's the point really? I mean, why should I strive doing this when I'm not even gonna be around in eight years, you know, or something? And that can get quite depressing. That's why we wanna come into the sanctuary. You know, and I don't mean just this sanctuary, but we want to come and we want to get our eyes focused upon the Lord again, because when we get our eyes off of the Lord, it can get really depressing. What's the point? Remember Solomon in Ecclesiastes, life is vain, right? And, and that's true. Life without God, it is pointless. You know, what, what is the point of accumulating all this wealth and I'm just going to pass from the scene and my kids are going to come and they're just going to blow it. I was so frugal for so many years. You guys need to think about this, by the way. You know, and the kids come in and then they just, everything I work so hard for, and if your eyes are just focused on this life, it can get really depressing. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon, when he came to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he said this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. When you get down to everything, get God in focus. Recognize it's what you do with him. It's your relationship with him. That's what really matters. And you know, when you think about it, it doesn't really matter what I do for the next 10 years or the next 20 years, as long as I'm in the center of God's will. It doesn't matter if I've accumulated a lot of things or, or done things that I can feel good about as long as I'm in the center of God's will and I'm doing what he wants me to do, then, hey, this life isn't the end all, right? I mean, this is like a vapor. It's a stepping stone as we're passing through into the presence of the Lord. So Lord, take my life and use it the way you wanna use it. And whatever happens, praise the Lord. And, and we move on from there. So the whole point of what I'm trying to say is it's important to get our eyes and keep our eyes on the Lord. Asaph's a great example of just getting his eyes off and being stumbled by what he was seeing. But when he got his eyes back on the Lord, then he could see clearly and really know that which was most important. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Seek of primary importance, God's kingdom, his ways, He'll take care of everything else. Hopefully that's encouraging. I kind of felt like I needed to hear that this week, you know, in all seriousness. Keeping our eyes focused upon the Lord. Verse 18, as he's got now the perspective, surely you sent them, the wicked, in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. In verse two, Asaph said his steps had nearly slipped. Down here, we see that it's actually the wicked that are on the slippery slope. Verses 18 and 19 were two of the main scriptures that Jonathan Edwards used when he wrote Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Here's just a little bit of it. As he stands on such slippery, declining ground, on the edge of a pit, he cannot stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. And that's the end 
of the wicked. Like a dream, it's got a sense of reality. Wow, look at the wicked prospering. But one day there's going to be a rude awakening where that day of accountability will come. Beginning from this part of the psalm, the word you, like look at verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down. The word you, the word yours, used 15 times throughout the rest of the psalm. It's like at this point when Asaph got the sanctuary perspective, he got his eyes on the Lord. Verse 21, thus my heart, he writes, was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. It's like he's beating himself up at this point. You know, how, how, could, I have, how could I have gotten my eyes so off of you? Uh, like a beast, an animal that has no sense of eternity. And so, uh, so foolish to think the way I was thinking. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that precious? Nevertheless, God is good. As we look at these, he says, I am continually with you. That speaks of the fellowship he has with the Lord. You hold my right hand, his protection. Guide me with your counsel, his guidance. Receive me to glory. And that's the hope that we have. Amen. That hope that we're going to pass from this life into the next. In essence, look at all I have. I might not have what the rich and famous have, but I have Jesus. And he's more than enough. Amen. Amen. Verse 27, for indeed those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Notice verse 27, he speaks of those who are far and perishing. And verse 28, about him drawing near to God. It's kind of like a choice to be made, isn't it? We can be far or we can be near. We can have death or we can have life. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The bottom line is this, we get our eyes off of the Lord, it can get really depressing to live out our existence. We keep our eyes on the Lord and that's when we're, that's when we're full. Jesus spoke about the abundant life, didn't he? A life that, that's filled, not only bearing fruit, but filled with vitality. And that comes through a relationship with Jesus. But, but guys, as believers, it comes as we keep our eyes upon the Lord and keep them there. That means starting our day in prayer. It means starting our day reading our Bible, getting us back in the, in the, the kind of like a reset, isn't it? Getting us back on what's truly important. Reading the word because it's giving God the opportunity to speak to our heart through his word. Remember that his word is living and active. It's alive and it's powerful. It's not an old history book that talks to us about the, just only the nation of Israel or how God worked with them. It is alive and it can come into your life and it can affect you like no other book can because God takes his word by his spirit and he does a remarkable work in his people. So that's all I got. Keep our eyes on the Lord, okay. Can I have the ushers come forward at this time?
we're going to be receiving the elements of communion this morning. And this is where we're looking back at what Jesus has done for us. And as I have shared, it's uh, about coming to God his way on his terms, and that's through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so if you have come out today and never trusted Jesus as your savior, I encourage you to do that just in the privacy of your heart. Say, God, receive me, forgive me a sinner and make me the person you want me to be. And that's, that's the whole reason he brought his son into the world. And as a believer, I just want to encourage each one of us that we keep our eyes on the Lord. If there's anything that's hindering our relationship with him, that's keeping us from being all that he's destined us to be, then this is the time really to let it go and say, God, I'm, I'm handing it off. I, I want to serve you. I, I don't want this to mess up my life. So join me, will you, in prayer. Fathers, we come before you now. We're thankful, especially for your love for us. We thank you so much, Jesus, for you laying your life down so that we can have life. And I pray that you would just fill us afresh, help us to, to have and keep that perspective of, of what's most important. And Lord, we do pray that if there are any here who don't yet know you, that they would reach out today and that they would really see just how good you are. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.